Hello, and welcome to Three Panel Contrast, the podcast that puts certain academics and certain comics featuring guys in bright red bubble costumes with the best tushes you've ever seen into conversation. <laughs> In this episode, we're talking about a couple of fairly different series starring the man without fear himself, none other than Marvel's Daredevil, aka Matt Murdock. Unless you work for the press or the state bar, in which case he's definitely not Matt Murdock. The meaning of that little quip will become clear as we dig into the issues we're discussing this month, which are Daredevil Volume 2, number 41 to 45, originally published in 2003 by Brian Michael Bendis and Alex Maleev, and Daredevil Volume 3, number 1 to 7 from 2011 by Mark Wade with art by Paolo Rivera and Marcos Martin. We've got our usual crew this month. As always, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I'm a writer, talker, occasional university instructor, and passionate fan of guys in bright red devil costumes, especially <laughs> when they have nice tushes. And I am joined by... Dr. Michael Hancock. Hi, and I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. So there's a lot of stuff that we can talk about with these two volumes, and we will start with an introduction to each of them by each of you. All right, take it away, Andrew. The five-part arc Low Life from Daredevil 41 to 45, part of the Marvel Knights series, transitions the Brian Michael Bendis Alex Maleev run on the series toward bold new vistas of pressure cooking in Hell's Kitchen. Matt Murdock has been outed, so to speak, his super identity revealed to the public, and he must now navigate through both his legal career uh, and ninja punching career uh, without the discrete separation between his dual identities. He does this the way any juvenile being would, child or man-child, by denying everything and essentially gaslighting everyone around him by leaning into his disability. After all, a blind superhero? You're crazy. Unfortunately for Matt slash fortunately for the reader, the recent departure of the Kingpin due to severe injuries in the wake of an assassination attempt has created a power vacuum in Matt's backyard, and Leland Orser, aka the Owl, is seeking to claim it. He's just not super qualified for that task. Add to that a new love interest and a culminating temptation for Matt to give up on his responsibilities, at least the superhero ones, and we end up with a grounded character story whose fingerprints are all over the recent and much-loved Netflix Daredevil series. Bendis manages to articulate Matt as a sympathetic and somber figure without the heavy emphasis on Catholic iconography that has been used to that purpose so prominently by prior Daredevil writers. He also manages to bring life to a supporting cast, with Foggy, Mila, and Jessica Jones occupying Matt's world in a way that feels very grounded. They're not just there to serve as Matt's foils. Okay, sometimes Foggy is. Malib's artwork is exceptional, uh, balancing grounded realism with subtle expression and posture for the quiet scenes, and abstract surrealism in the style of Bill Sienkiewicz for the action scenes, or any scene with the owl. The contrast Maliev creates paces the book, creating a jack-in-the-box effect in which even the most banal scene feels like it's winding up to something spectacular in a scene to follow. This gives Marvel's most atmospheric superhero a whole lot of atmosphere to play with. Lastly, Bendis and Maliev nail the sense of Hell's Kitchen as a community with deep and meaningful significance to our red-horned superhero. For me, and we can talk about this, that has always been what makes Daredevil special. In the 1960s, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby envisioned a Marvel Comics where every superhero was tied to a borough or neighborhood and would represent it. 
There are pieces of that still in the Marvel universe, but as the scale of the stories ratcheted up pretty quickly and became galactic rather than regional in books like the Fantastic Four, I think that part of the Marvel vision was sacrificed. Grounding Daredevil in his community gives him a purpose and an investment that I don't think any other superhero has, with the possible exception of Batman in his beloved Gotham. But even Gotham feels like a fantasy world to me these days. Too big and abstract and filled with supernatural wonders to be a relatable setting. Bendis and Maleev's Hell's Kitchen, which is always, of course, Matt's Hell's Kitchen, feels more real. It has a texture that feels lived in, and feeling lived in makes it feel worth fighting for. And I don't know that any Daredevil run, despite a legendary staple of creators, captures that to the extent that this run does. So to me, this is peak Daredevil. Thank you so much, Andrew. I'm definitely going to have to ask you guys about setting in our discussion. Um, Michael, could you give us an intro to the Wade, Rivera, and Martin run? Daredevil was a good book, but a bleak book. Or at least that was Mark Wade's assessment. Writers such as Frank Miller, Kevin Smith, Brian Michael Bendis, Ed Brubaker, and Andrew Diggle had all contributed runs that were well-regarded, but unmistakably dark, featuring everything from sordid affairs to loved ones' deaths or worse, to outright demonic possession. In interviews, Wade affirmed that his daredevil would be different, catering to a more swashbuckling attitude and a lighter tone. Does that intent make it onto the page? Well, I suppose that's something we'll probably be talking about. For the moment, though, let's look deeper at the creative team behind the run. Wade and artists Paulo Riviera and Marcos Martin have been well lauded for the Daredevil relaunch, receiving a 2012 Eisner for Best Ongoing Series, and for Wade and Rivera, another Eisner for the Best Single Issue in Issue 7, in which Matt Murdock attempts to lead a bus full of blind children away from a car crash, or from a bus crash, rather, after a snowstorm. Martin is a Spanish comic artist who broke into North American comics with an issue of Batman Chronicles in 1998, and went on to do comics such as Black Girl Year One and Doctor Strange The Oath. He's won another Eisner for his work with Brian K. Vaughn and their creator-owned Pay What You Want series, The Private Eye. Rivera went to Rhode Island School of Design and studied under David Mazzucchelli, starting work at Marvel in 20, 2002, eventually leaving his exclusivity contract with them to do more creative-owned work. In one of my favorite factoids ever, he's inked by his father, and the series was Joe Rivera's first comic book work. As for Mark Wade, his comic career dates back to the 1980s, including overseeing many DC titles as editor. He became better known as a writer with his eight-year run on The Flash and a not-quite-as-long run on Captain America for Marvel. In 1996, he and Alex Ross created Kingdom Come, a story where classic DC superheroes fight their younger, out-of-control progeny, for which they gathered, garnered Wade's first Eisner. Wade would go on to be chief creative officer of Boom Studios, as well as launch new champions and Doctor Strange series for Marvel. But I know him best for his, for his 2002 to 2005 run on the Fantastic Four, which is widely regarded by me to be the best <laughs> the series has ever been since at least the John Byrne era. Whether or not this Daredevil series is light, it certainly is different than what came before. Rivera and Martin go to great lengths to, to portray Matt's radar sense in novel, vibrant ways, and Wade adopts an episodic approach to storytelling, touching on gangster weddings, high-tech supervillains, and heists, while also setting the stage for a longer story that puts Daredevil in the crosshairs of multiple big-league Marvel crime organizations. 
The series is full of moments that allowed Daredevil to do daringly. Wade said in interviews, the goal was to place him in situations that would have, quote, Green Lantern wet his pants. <laughs> the moment that stands out most is kind of setting the tone for the run is the second issue scene where we see for the second time D.A. Kirsten McDuffie. And it's highly insinuated there that he, she and Foggy Nelson, Matt's longtime partner, are romantically involved. It's later revealed that this is a misdirect. He's actually dating her roommate, leaving McDuffie clear for love interest for Matt. To be clear, this misdirect is not something the characters are even aware of. There's no nod towards the drama of Matt being in love with his best friend's lover or a comedy of mistaken identity. It's a, mar a misdirect there entirely for the reader and arguably not even a very good one. But to me, it's a stand-in for Wade's approach to the series, that his goal is to play with readers' preconceptions, from their meta-understanding of the tragedy that has defined Daredevil for so long to a simple misdirect of a newly hatched love interest. Like Daredevil himself, Wade is taking risks. Some pay off, some kind of don't, and some don't even register as risks, so much as just odd choices. But even though the series seems to be so different from what has come to define the character, the daring approach still seems to fit when writing about the man without fear. So as I know you're both aware, and at least some of our loyal listeners might be aware because we've mentioned it a couple of times, I'm a pretty big fan of Daredevil, and we've talked about doing a Daredevil episode for a while. I've been hesitant to do it in part just because it was so hard to pick which two runs we were going to compare. And we had a lot of discussion about whether we were going to do the Frank Miller run or... I always like to spotlight the Anasanti run as a particularly interesting one, sort of the classic Gene Colan penciled run where Daredevil and Black Widow are living in San Francisco, I think is one that doesn't get enough play. So there were a lot of different ones that we could have chosen. The Ed Brubaker run, I also enjoy in a lot of ways, the beginning of that run where Daredevil gets sent to prison yeah. <laughs> with like all, of the, all of the people that he's put in prison. I believe it's the devil inside and out. I've reread that one like a hundred times. It's one of my all-time favorites. And I kept anticipating that they would do that storyline in the show and then they never did because it's such a gold one to have him in prison <laughs> and like fighting his way through all of his former enemies anyway getting back to the topic at hand and the two series that we did choose to discuss so the reason i feel like we kind of landed on these ones and i kind of ended up picking these ones was because they did present these interesting contrasts and you guys highlighted that in your intros so I thought we'd maybe just start with kind of a general discussion about the character of Daredevil and how he is similar and different in these two texts, because if we're doing two Daredevil texts, right, it's a great invitation to talk about how character development works within serialized storytelling and how characters manage to kind of maintain that kernel of their identity across these two very different series. So if you were picking up either of these series for the first time, and this was your first encounter with Daredevil, what would you argue defines the character? Well, I think maybe coming back to my intro, I, I think Daredevil represents sort of the burden of a community. Uh, okay. Fighting for the community and being sort of weary. And I know that's going to create conflict with um, um, Wade's Daredevil. But I, yeah. I, I like the weariness. I like the idea that the burden is a burden. Um, I don't know. I, when I was listening to, to Michael give his introduction, I was kind of coming over to his side. I, I came into this mm -hmm. thinking that that Wade's daredevil was a betrayal of Bendis's. <laughs> and I know that that's, that's a stupid way to approach any kind of literature, right? To emphasize that hardcore continuity. Um, but then everything Michael said, I'm like, yeah, he's right. Crap. 
Yeah, it's hard, right? Because when I first read the Wade run, I saw it as sort of in conversation with both some of the earlier Daredevil comics, you know, the 60s ones, but then also he had another turn toward kind of the light in the late 90s with a run by, ooh, Carl Kessel and Carrie Nord, I believe, which was actually a run I really enjoyed as well. And it ended mm-hmm. up going to a dark place as these as these things tend to do. Yeah, Michael, I know that you've read that run because you've posted yeah, with, about it on uh, social media, I think. With Foggy's uh, stepmother? Yes, or yes. She was heavily mother. featured. She yeah. was heavily featured in that run. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I just sort of saw it as kind of sort of part of a cycle that a character like this often works his way through. But I like that idea mm. of weariness. That's definitely been something that I always come back to for, for the character. I think sort of one of my core things with him is sort of his vulnerability. And, you know, him being the man without fear when he is uniquely vulnerable, I see as being very, um, one of the defining traits of the character. And, you know, he's a character that is really one of those characters that keeps getting knocked down and keeps getting back up. That's preserved in both of these, I think. That, like, the idea is not that Daredevil has never experienced tragedy in Wade's run. It's that this is the approach he's decided to take to it now. That, Mm -hmm. like, it's, it's not going to go into that in detail because... Honestly, in the latter half of Brubaker and Diggle, it becomes almost a kind of baroqueness of tragedy. But, I mean, it it has that similarity with the Bendis run, that this is both about, I'm going to keep getting up. Can we talk a little bit more about the way it kind of justifies or explains this change in Matt's personality at the beginning of the Wade run? Because it's kind of an important part of the narrative in those opening issues. Right. I, I think it can be kind of described as a daredevil deliberately decides to whistle in the dark, so to speak, that <laughs> uh, he has. And it's interesting. It's a series that like defines itself by being, okay, we're going to be the lighter daredevil. But in a lot of ways, the actual, if you take a look at the storylines that are happening, they're not particularly light i mean this isn't squirrel girl or something along those lines where it's like an actual out comedy book at least Mm. not to the same degree i mean it's it's lighter but the things that happen to him he's almost transformed into claw he is put at the like in the guns of dozens of different criminal organizations like it is still could be played as kind of grim stuff. Okay, I was just going to say that that's really interesting to me because if we look at the fundamental plot movement in Bendis's run, that could easily be played for laughs. Uh, like, like the owl's ineptitude in trying to live yeah. up to the standard of the kingpin. Well, and then we have moments of comedy in the Bendis series too. Like I love the scene where, uh, what is it, Wilbur Smith, Stil- Stiltman comes into the office. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, that's it, you win, I'm retiring. And Matt just keeps being like, I'm sorry, have we met? <laughs> and it's really, really great. Stiltman so like, yeah, you do have comedy so in the... I know. So you have that comedy in the Batman series too, but I mean, to what extent do you think that that difference in tone then is like simply communicated actually through the artwork? Because I mean, maybe that like we usually end up getting to artwork like as one of our last questions, but maybe in this case it actually needs to be the first question because I think sort of the visual texture of these comics is sort of one of the most dramatic differences between them in a way. Yeah, I think the Malieve stuff has that. It really reminds me of, I think it's Degas, um, Kronos eating his children. 
Mm-hmm. I get a lot of like that when anytime I see the owl. So I think that's a huge part of it. But I also think the um, um, narration style is is an enormous contributor. Like I'm thinking, mm-hmm. of, um, especially Mark Wade's narration in that first issue of Daredevil mm-hmm. really sets a different tone. Well, it's much more lighthearted and adventurous. Where I think mm-hmm. if we look at Bendis's Matt. He's um, deeply pensive and self-doubting and frankly self-hating in, in many um, individual sequences. Yeah, a lot of the sort of extended interior monologues that we have are sort of mad just being like, God, I was so stupid. I shouldn't yeah, exactly. have like thought I could have this relationship. I need to be better. I need to be smarter. And he's just like sort of berating himself a lot of the time. Yeah, and this is a daredevil in Wade's run that like it doesn't take out internal monologue entirely, but the internal monologue is much more geared towards, okay, what is this that I'm facing right now? Then, well, I, it gets a little closer to the self-berating in the uh, one-off. The school bus one? Yeah, the yeah. school bus one. Yeah. But for a very, like, deliberate purpose to give the turn more meaning. Right. Uh, but it, yeah, yeah, he he do, isn't thinking about the past, and that's like deliberately set up. We even have Foggy like worrying that Daredevil is not worrying more about mm-hmm. the past. Well, I sort of t- take it as sort of like a meta take on '60s Daredevil, right? We're kind of going back mm-hmm. right to the origins of the character and kind of his more. He was more of a Spider-Man esque kind of character in those early issues. He definitely was sort of a lighthearted mm-hmm. trickster type character more, mm-hmm. and so I see it kind of going back to that, but with Moggy with Foggy's concern that Matt is just. Because, I mean, you think of him, Foggy is worried that Matt is just shutting himself off from the trauma of his past and not addressing it, right? So you can see that as a meta-commentary on this reboot of the character, you know? Like, you can't just forget Daredevil's whole past and just move forward. You can't just make a decision to just be lighthearted about everything. That's not how continuity works. And I see the voice of, like, those complaining fans in kind of Foggy's <laughs> complaint there, right? I mean, did you guys get a sense of that at mm-hmm. all? Yeah, I think that works really well, too, with um sort of the... I don't know, elephant in the room, maybe just the idea that for a lot of people, Daredevil is Frank Miller's Daredevil. And like, that's the Mm -hmm. first Daredevil. And as you said, Anna, there's a whole history beyond that that is, you know, very different and has a lot of value as well. So we can see Wade sort of reaching beyond this, this fake ceiling, let's call it. I apologize. Well, it's interesting the way, (laughs) it's interesting the way like continuity works that way, right? Because continuity isn't really continuity. You, if you're reading Daredevil comics, most people haven't read the entire thing from his, what, 1963 debut to the present. It kind of depends what's been available and what's been republished. And the Frank mm-hmm. Miller Daredevil has been one of the most republished, you know, runs of the characters. So that, in addition to sort of the critical praise that that run got and that it helped launch Miller's career, I think it has an outsized importance just because of availability as well. Yeah, for sure. I think... I think it's variable. Like we see this a lot in Marvel comics. So like X-Men, which obviously I study, um, Claremont created the X-Men, but of course he didn't. And there's some good runs in there beforehand. There's some good creators. And then something like Spider-Man, I would argue, it's not like we've skipped over sort of early issues because a lot of people still define Spider-Man by Steve Ditko. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it Mm -hmm. seems kind of selective to me. It'll be interesting the degree to which marvel unlimited changes that since everything is technically accessible now although i imagine it's going to be overshadowed more than anything by the film versions then yeah yeah for sure and cultural accessibility too right a lot of people don't like the silly tone of certain 1960s marvel comics 
Can I get us back to a question of about the artwork a little bit, just because we were starting to open up a conversation about that. <laughs> yes. I mean, one of the things that I think of when I look at that Alex Malib artwork is that it has that really cool kind of merging of past and present. It always looks a little bit like he's in like prohibition era. <laughs> yeah. And like, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, could you could you tell us a little bit more about about what is his style? If you were going to describe it for our listeners, how would you characterize it? Oh, um, well, I think I use the term sort of surrealist at times, but again, it, it's, it's variable. That's what I really like about him as a comics artist. He mm -hmm. uses a different style according to the different needs of the scene. Uh, and, and this is something we see extensively in manga, uh, where you'll, you'll vary your visual style according to, you know, whatever's emotional tone you're trying to set. Um, but North American comics don't normally do that. Uh, normally you have somebody sort of land on a style and they'll stick with it you know, rigorously for reasons that I'm not even entirely clear on like like why they feel the need for that consistency um but Malib, as i said like, likes to mix it up um in his like normal style that like the quiet style let's call it maybe um you got a lot of like like dense cross hatching you've got thick lines uh and adding i'm sorry i don't even i don't have the name of the the colorist written down hollingsworth I mean, thank you so much and i'm looking at it right now in the credits matt hollingsworth yeah yeah you've got a really sort of earth tone thing happening mm -hmm. whereas when we go over to wade you're going to get like like bright colors uh and, and steady colors um so so again it's um atmospheric i think it may be the best mm -hmm. way to describe malif simply malif uses a lot of kind of overlays too like i mean you mentioned the cross hatching yeah. but he actually like sort of overlays textures which i think he does digitally um but uh but yeah, and it just gives the world kind of a literally noir feel, right? It mm -hmm. is a dark world and it is literally dark. Yeah, I think the artists we would compare him to maybe, or at least I would. Um, I mentioned Bill Sinkevich um, very mm -hmm. strongly, I think. I, I, there's a really direct influence there. Um, and mm -hmm. then maybe also um, um, Dave McKean, best known for like his Sandman mm -hmm. covers. And, and again, using mixed media. Uh, and trying to create this kind of almost like cosmic horror-y feel, which I, I really like in comics because it, it's so wow. abstracted and metaphorical. Honestly, there's some stuff here that reminds me of the Afterlife with Archie. Oh, really? Okay. I which can see that. went very realism and yeah. Huh. An interesting comparison. Yeah, I mean, part of why I chose this particular run with the owl, I thought it was a relatively self-contained one, but I also loved the what he does visually with the owl. I'll admit the one like thing that it's not always uh, smooth action wise. Like it, the, there's a scene where a head is decapitated and floating in a pool. I did not get that that head was decapitated. <laughs> I thought it was just a guy floating in the pool. <laughs> yeah, yeah, same. Like, oh, he's having a swim. Um, on the Mark Wade run side of things, I, I'll have to confess, I forgot that. The Wade run didn't start with Samney. Oh, uh, so, really? That's funny. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is like, I, I do strongly associate the run with Samney, but I also really, really love, I'm um, sorry, it should be Marcos Martin, right? I think I said Martin earlier, but um, but yeah, I just love, he's one of my favorite, favorite artists. And I just like love the kind of bright geometric sort of spatial orientations of his pages and stuff. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, although I really liked Samney as well. Some of these some of these intro issues I just adore. That fight with the lion from yeah. I think, issue number four. I always use that one to teach <laughs> sort of intro to sort of 
comics in, in, in some of my classes at, at the university level, like in terms of especially those two opening sequences with the with the geometric layouts and sort of mm -hmm. seeing his senses kind of like develop in the scene with the, the black boxes with the dialogue and then the little close up shots of sort of his feet, his like uh, face, his hands, and then that wonderful, the way it wonderfully opens up into the fight with the lion. It's just one of my favorite sequences. What would you say in terms of in terms of sort of communicating sort of that lightness or brightness? Could you say a little bit more about kind of the style of, of these two artists, Michael? Well, first, I'll start with just a compliment to them that they're it's unusual, at least for me to see two artists complement each other so well that there's still a unified they're still distinct, but there's a unified tone in this volume that you might not be expecting given mm -hmm. two different artists. Yeah, I really like the way they handle, all, like, there's a lot of different ways that Matt's radar sense is depicted here. I love the yes. half-formed claws and the a similar effect on Spot at the very beginning. The way that it gives, like, the snaps of images. I One of the things I like about the Wade run that did not appear, at least in the part of the Bendis that we ran, or that we read, is that, like, there are fights that are well choreographed. That doesn't really happen in at least the five issues we read. The mm -hmm. Owl and Daredevil kind of flail at each other a bit, but it's not much of a fight. Dare Owl goes down very easily at the end of these five issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say in general, Alex Maliev's sort of approach to action is more sort of suggestive and iconic rather than kind of kinetic in the same way that Rivera or Martin would be. And so that Bendis, is definitely a difference. And Bendis isn't really interested in fight scenes for the most part. Characters kind of shoot powers at each other and then it's over. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, there's some very memorable kind of fight tableaus in that series, I, I can think. I mean, you know, I'm thinking ahead to the one where Daredevil encounters the Yakuza, the Yakuza in the rain outside of his house. And it's just like a really cinematic, wonderful action sequence. And yet it's not, yeah, so much the kineticness of the action, so much as sort of the iconic tableaus that Malib mm -hmm. creates. But um, let's talk about the supervillains, because I think it dovetails quite nicely with the art, as you were sort of suggesting, which is that the choice of supervillains in the Wade series, I think were chosen on purpose to kind of showcase Daredevil's powers. I mean, we have, you know, a sound-based supervillain, and we have a supervillain in the spot who plays with time and space and mm -hmm. kind of allows Daredevil to showcase some aspects of his powers. So how did you see that working, Michael, in terms of sort of the purpose of the of the of the Wade series, you know, getting back to some of these questions about how Daredevil's character is being defined in these in this series, why these supervillains for these for this series? How did you think it was effective or not effective? I think it's really important that these aren't typical Daredevil villains. That mm -hmm. uh, part of the shift from what's come before is what seems like a very deliberate choice on Wade's part to go also this isn't going to be another story about the kingpin. We're not going to bring Bullseye back right away. It's mm -hmm. uh, more of a focus on what uh, what else can we do with Daredevil that's interesting. And it's it's a move back towards more gimmicky enemies, too. Uh, Spot and Claw are very much, as you said, spatially and sound-based, respectively. And there's even, it feels like kind of a gimmick with the... Uh, Hydra hench guy that shows up too. That he is, he, 
once Daredevil has kind of figured it out, okay, now I can beat this guy. It places more emphasis on, yeah, how, how Daredevil sees the world, how he sees his powers interacting in the world with a way that lets him do this. I, I'm, the one I'm skipping here is the fight with Captain America, which is also mm -hmm. very much about how do we startle Daredevil? How does Daredevil... I, I think he has a line where he thanks Captain America for throwing the shield at him because it was a chance to interact with something that's like a Stradivarius violin. Yep. That mm -hmm. It's just this piece of finesse. And there's certainly more fighting than the Bendis run, but it's fighting to kind of reinforce that central theme of how Daredevil experiences the world. Yeah, and I love that because that's what supervillains kind of should do in relation to the superhero. I mean, it's all about sort of working through the superhero's identity through the contest with the supervillains. And I think the supervillains that are chosen in the Wade run are really smart in terms of, you know, giving us effectively an intro to Daredevil, right? It's a reset of Daredevil in some ways, but also sort of making clear what this run is going to do with his powers, how it's going to approach, approach kind of his sensory experience of the world and adding to what we know about his powers in a lot of ways as well yeah and i think it suits the tone shift as well the idea that part of the the thing in wade's run is to make it so that matt's having fun right so finding a visual dynamism in the exercise of his superpowers mm. is an important way to contribute and communicate that to the reader yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Well, what about the villains in the <laughs> Bendis Malib run? We get this kind of very goofy, but I was, I'm suggesting also very terrifying version of Owl. Yeah. What do we kind of learn about Matt Murdock, about Daredevil through these interactions with the Owl? Well, so I, I really like it, actually. I think, I think it defines the nature of um, Bendis' take on Daredevil as a superhero. The Owl is, like, exactly as you said, he's terrifying but he's not super competent, right? Uh, I mean, this is in the arc called Low Life. So he's a threat for being dangerous and vicious and brutal. Um, but intellectually, he's, he's, he's no kingpin. Uh, so yeah. it's this idea of crime, not as like this, this cartoonish supervillain perspective that we often get in comic books that's brutally inaccurate. Uh, it's the idea of crime as almost like, like random violence kind of danger stuff, not evil conspiracy. That's not what you should be afraid of. And Matt having to navigate that is really cool. His lawyer presents a greater threat than he does. Exactly. And I love that relationship because you know the lawyer is the one with the good ideas, but the owl is the scary guy who's going to eat him if he doesn't like what he says. <laughs> Do you think it helps us understand sort of an aspect of Daredevil's power kind of related to his, I don't know, his lawyer identity in some ways? Because, I mean, it always seems like the greatest threats to Matt, even though you'd think he'd be a very physically vulnerable superhero, but historically the greatest threats to him have been kind of institutional threats. You know, the one time he really gets broken by the kingpin, it's, you know, he gets disbarred as a lawyer, he loses all of his money. You know, yeah. that's the kind of true threat to Matt Murdock. And I find it interesting to see how kind of his control of Hell's Kitchen and sort of the politics of Hell's Kitchen play out through these interactions with the owl and his lawyer. Yeah, and I think that again comes back to the the connection to the setting, as, as you said, right? It, it makes the setting um, um, a greater contributor to his heroism. Um, if you compare him to something like, like, like Clark Kent, you, you think about how many great stories there are about Clark Kent reporting. Uh, they basically don't exist. Some have tried, right? Uh, having Matt Murdock be able to operate on both levels with his dual identity and to have them intersect the way that they frequently intersect and the way they're clearly intersecting here, just because again, he's been outed. 
Um, I, I think that's a really cool dynamic. I think it's really challenging for a writer to, to make something out of that. And that's where I think, um, again, Bendis is, is excelling in this run. Yeah, when I've been just, when I was first getting really, really into Daredevil and I was just so passionately invested in him, I was just like, whoa, <laughs> the secret identity, like superhero thing <laughs> with Daredevil is perfect. It is the perfect one. It is so great because the his daytime identity and his nighttime identity reinforce each other and in conflict with each other in such a pure, perfect way. Yeah. Because he's working on the cases that he's working on during the day at night as Daredevil, but then that inevitably creates conflicts, especially when we introduce something like his, his secret identity being outed. And it's just, it's such a, it's such a like simple secret identity. And yet it's such an effective one for how this character is sort of situated in the worlds that we see him situated in here. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's talk about, so I'm still trying to get us kind of back to defining this character. And we should probably talk about the disability angle because we haven't really talked about that yet, although we've talked a little bit about some of the ways that these comics use his powers. So just in brief, like another defining aspect of Daredevil obviously is his disability. Um, and there's a lot that's fundamentally problematic about it. Um, so basically, he represents a stereotype that people who are blind or visually impaired have their other senses enhanced. This is kind of a disability as magical power trope. And related to this, he can be read as reflecting what's sometimes referred to as a compensation model of disability, wherein mm -hmm. disability is, is perceived as an absence or deficiency that must be overcome or compensated for in other ways. So the compensation model of disability, in effect, requires people with disabilities to be superheroes in a way. It's sort of this idea of, of the super crip. Um, so rather than changing society to accommodate disability, we often require people with disabilities to accommodate everyone else effectively. Um, and all of these problematic tropes are at play with Daredevil and, in fact, with almost every superhero who has a disability who, who generally interacts with this compensation model to some degree. Did we see sort of some of these problems at work in the texts that we read for this month? Did we see either of these texts trying to sort of complexify those tropes? What was sort of your take on it? Sort of your take on Daredevil as <laughs> Daredevil as problematic disability metaphor? Well, I think in Bendis's run for me, I don't think it was handled well. Like I don't, I don't mind just kind of editorializing. Mm -hmm. Um, for me, the big problem in, in this particular arc is just the idea that he's hiding behind his disability. Now, th there's a mm -hmm. potential to be subversive there, right? The idea being that he's his disguise is the ignorance of a society that can't make that association between um, having a disability and being a superhero. But I don't think Bendis is playing to that very effectively. Uh, and then moreover, I find his relationship with Mila really problematic. Um, mm -hmm. introducing a blind character as a love interest. Mm -hmm. I, I don't love that. That feels like tokenism to me. I mean, it's clearly there to address the issue a bit, but I would agree that it makes it. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the criticisms of Bendis as a writer, and I do think it's a fair criticism is that he often introduces potentially interesting elements and doesn't follow through on them as effectively as he might do. I think the Daredevil series is an example of him for the most part doing that pretty effectively. The series really has this inciting incident of the secret identity being outed and we see the ramifications of that play out over the course of his like, you know, really long, like 100 issue run. And yet I think the 
character of Mila does not participate in that as meaningfully as she could. Um, yeah, exactly. Spoiler on a comic that came out sort of 15 mm. years ago. She eventually, in Ed Brubaker's run, gets driven, as they say in comic book parlance, driven mad by um, Mr. Fear um, and becomes institutionalized. And um, we someone. actually seen yeah. her. Yeah, we haven't actually seen her in comics um, since the last time she was featured, I think, briefly in, in one of the runs after that. So that is not great. Um, in terms of, I think that there was an opportunity with Mila to get at some of the ways that Daredevil does take advantage of, of his disability, the way you're suggesting, Andrew. I mean, we get sort of even some suggestions in her introduction here of like, he'll make comments like, oh, she doesn't know that the police are at the house. She's just a quote unquote regular blind woman. She doesn't yeah. have these enhanced senses that I have. On the other hand, I could see it being introduced <laughs> as a point of, you know, identification and as a point of commonality, as a way for him to think about his own experience. And maybe it's something that she understands. And yet we see that distance exactly. of like his experience mm -hmm. isn't really a traditional blind experience in almost any way. Yeah, and yeah, I, think I don't think it does it well, but I can see the potential and uh, I don't know. I think there's a horrible comparison to be made here. We've seen a lot of this on the news where if you have like a like a big celebrity get busted for something that they emphasize their their feebleness in order to defend mm -hmm. them like i'm thinking like harvey weinstein on a walker in order mm -hmm. to make them sympathetic there's elements of matt doing that by again playing this blind card and oh i'm blind i couldn't be daredevil when he actually has these enhanced senses that we know about so it's really mm -hmm. abstract it's not an apt comparison but there's still something a little bit sketchy about him pleading blind when we know that he can do cool backflips off buildings and stuff. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I'm sure Bendis wasn't trying to surface that, but it still made me feel a little uncomfortable. It's a little bit of what the, um, in this particular arc, uh, Luke Cage calls him on, but yeah, yeah. there's never, yeah. but there's never a scene where like Mila gets to do the equivalent of Luke and call him out on that side. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I would say for me, that's a fundamental problem with, you know, Mila never really acquires sort of a self-consciousness that allows her to, yeah, like call out Matt on some of these issues. But yeah, you're absolutely right that there's a later scene with Luke Cage, similar to the one that we get in this run, where he like de facto tells Matt, like, this is effed up. You could be like an inspiration to blind people if you were just open about this and you're like depriving people of that and it's bullshit. And so you can see Bendis there being aware of sort of some of those problems and yet is he dealing with them or is he not dealing with them? I mean, what about what about the Wade run then? Are we thinking that it's doing better or, or does it have some of the same issues? Um, well, the Wade run addresses it, well, has a similar case to... Mila, and that we have two kind of story arcs featuring uh, other blind characters, one that Matt has to protect as they have information about crime families and the aforementioned busload of children. You can see Wade trying very hard to like give agency to these characters. The entire point of the bus crash issue is that the children eventually inspire Matt to keep going. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he overplays his hand to an extent. He has a, it's kind of like his run on champions that oh, man. Uh, he, go, he goes a bit far, uh, not quite <laughs> as far as champions, but mm -hmm. he, yeah, he overplays it. He right. can be a bit didactic at times. Yeah. Well, I mean, what would, 
would it take to make the disability trope less problematic in Daredevil? Is it about, as you're suggesting, Michael, sort of integrating more, quote unquote, actually blind characters who are more accurately representing blindness into the text? Or does it take, you know, dealing more in depth with his sensory experience so that it becomes less of a trope, so that it becomes something more complex, so that we really know kind of the scope of it and it doesn't become an appropriation? Like, what would be required to fix this character? And is this character fixable or is it always going to be a problem? I th maybe the best spin you can put on it is that it's a tension in the character that can't be resolved and is thus, well, this is, this is turning into less of a good spin as I work it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tension of the character that is always going to be fodder for stories in a way. And mm -hmm. that kind of is good in that it will draw attention to the issue and kind of is bad in that it's turning the issue into another plot point. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, there was a couple of moments in the Bendis Maliv series, just to say something that I think that it does effectively, where he is being kind of mistreated by the cops and that kind of thing. And like, I did think that there was a presence there of him being mistreated in a sense because of his disability, or at least that the mistreatment was related to his disability. Um, because if you conceive of the cops treating him as a regular blind man and sort of a lot of the cracks that they're making and stuff like oh well you're gonna drive yourself to the police station and stuff right and like there was a great scene where he's standing in the police station with the light bearing down on him with his head kind of lowered and being like sort of brought low and made helpless because he's not allowed to assume his daredevil personality and mm -hmm. i did see kind of you know a little bit of sort of like an honest reckoning sort of with what that disability means to him because it does limit him in some ways and especially when he has to play a role sort of as as that person and again i don't think it's it's perfect and i think it's still problematic and yet i think that sort of speaks to that conflict right that this character can be as luke cage suggests like inspiring in a lot of ways and yet yeah it's just it's, it's a problem right yeah mm -hmm. i really like what you were saying anna about the potential of the miller character because because that's the opportunity mm -hmm. to disambiguate the different things that Matt has in common with people who are visually impaired and the things that he doesn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and to sort of establish where the shared community is and the boundaries of his capacity to represent or even just to like, like sympathize and empathize with that mm -hmm. community. Um, but that doesn't happen. I, don't, I, I haven't read as far as you guys have. I don't know if it happens later on. I'm guessing not. She doesn't ever acquire the level of agency necessary to kind of be that voice, I would argue. But I do want to talk a little bit more about Mila, but I also just want to don't want to completely go away from this disability thing, only because I have sort of a little spiel that I want to say about it <laughs> and sort of my complex feelings about Daredevil that I can't, that I have to reckon with always when I'm thinking about my love of this character, which is that kind of his blindness is central to my love of the character in the sense that it speaks to, you know, his vulnerability, it speaks to, you know, the nature of what it means to be fearless for this character that he is very vulnerable and yet in a sense getting back to sort of that that narrative conceit in the wade run he makes a choice not to be afraid right mm -hmm. and the central experience of the character the way he like feels the city the way he's kind of in a holistic relationship with the city that can be a subversion of traditional masculinity as well in some ways so it's mm -hmm. This disability trope that's really problematic, and yet I think it does a lot of interesting things with gender, which I am quite attached to. And part of what I like really personally love about him is that he is so unlike me. I'm like hyper 
visual and afraid of everything. And Daredevil is exactly the opposite. Like I have a lot of anxiety about crowded spaces and I definitely hate heights. But like my favorite Daredevil images are those ones where he's like usually jumping backwards off a building because he's fearless and he's just there kind of suspended in air, kind of this vivid red symbol amid the skyline. And when I think about the visual differences between him and a character like Superman, who usually is sort of depicted sort of soaring above the skyline or Spider-Man kind of swings through the skyline. When I think of Daredevil, it's sort of that iconic image of his of him falling into the city. And I think about no connected to an image like that, kind of the euphoria that he must experience in that moment, because again, he exists holistically in the space. He's feeling every part of the city kind of, you know, like against his skin within his body in those moments and like that joy and that euphoria i think is really essential to the character and yet it's inseparable from that disability trope and that's something i find i have to constantly reckon with in terms of sort of my love of this character and so that's why i'm always interested in kind of talking about can we redeem this character or is the disability trope always going to be too problematic to be redeemable because I honestly find that sort of thinking about that holistic connection that Daredevil has with the city actually helps me sort of work through some of my anxieties and helps me sort of think through some of my fears. And that's sort of one of the deep connections that I have to this character. But is the value that I get in this character redeemable or not? And that's something I've always reckoned with in terms of my fandom of this character. Well, just to add a variable to that, because that, that that's amazing. And even just the idea of him falling mm -hmm. back, that was immediately oh crap that makes so much sense um what do you think about the fact that we have this this character representing visual impairment in a visual medium uh, i know what, what does that do i know this is also the like they made some press with the launch of this particular series because it was the first audio only comic version too was released mm -hmm. uh which is which has been met uh mixed reviews let's say yeah, I mean, that's always going to be a tricky topic because, again, is it compensation? Is it accommodation? You know, what are we doing when we're kind of adapting comics and turning them into audio comics? Because that can be a gesture of inclusion, but there's a lot of questions bound up in, you know, what should inclusion look like? And, you know, should we be expecting people who have a different experience of the world to be consuming the same media that we're consuming, right? right. And so it's mm -hmm. just there's a lot. I think this character raises a lot of interesting questions. I think to make the character kind of redeemable and deal with some of those questions does have to be sort of an ongoing, you know, thing, both for the fans of the character and for the creators of the character, figuring out, I mean, popular characters are never going to be perfect. The superhero genre itself is always going to be politically problematic. There's kind of no getting around that. And yet I think it's important to kind of reckon with these issues and, and, you know, to the extent that we're able to do that, sort of use these characters to open up those kind of kinds of conversations, which is, you know, a kind of bullshit response. Like, well, it's a, it's an ongoing conversation, but I mean, yeah, it it's is. just again for, my, for myself. <laughs> yeah. Like I don't really have a, I'm just like, I know that aspects of how I invest in this character are problematic and I reckon with that all the time. And yet, because I find that this character has been such a positive influence in my life, it's really hard for me to be like, oh, I think we should just cancel Daredevil because of these other things. And it's, I don't know, these things are very emotional and very sort of complex for 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 all of us. But I mean, I think that there's important questions about who has the most stake in some of these issues. And I'm perfectly willing to accept that I don't have the strongest stake not being someone who has mm -hmm. a visual disability. Mm. Uh, 
All right, let's finally, finally, perhaps something that we should have talked about initially, these love interests. And we've talked a little bit about Mila already. What was your mileage on, did you root for these relationships that were kind of getting built here between Mila and Matt and between Kirsten and Matt? The Kirsten and Matt relationship doesn't really start in the issues that we read, but sort of the seeds for it are definitely being sowed, right? She's being introduced as a viable love option for Matt and trying to be set up, I think, as sort of an anodyne for some of the unsuccessful relationships he's had in the past she's being set up to be well i'll let you guys speak to it but she's being set up to be sort of a certain type of competent right in a way that will make her not a damsel and distress figure i would argue but what was what was your kind of take let's start with mila um what was either of your take did you root for this relationship as it was presented or not not at all okay <laughs> i thought i didn't like the tokenism aspect and the whole you saved me so i'm in love with you thing is mm -hmm. uncomfortable to me do you think it was meant to be uncomfortable though i don't know some of her behavior is very stalkerish yeah i it worked for me in ways that i am not that i don't entirely <laughs> like that it works <laughs> like i think it says more about me than that yeah um, Do you I, want to expand on that, or um, is that I, I recognize fully that what uh, Andrew is saying is one hundred percent true. The problematics <laughs> of that, I but also like if you eliminated every relationship a superhero has with someone they rescued at some point, yep. uh, then you wouldn't be left with very many relationships. Yeah, um, I mean. I'll speak on behalf of it, just to the extent that it was my feeling that it was presented like she wasn't making a good choice and that she was going down a bad path with it. I mean, there's a scene where she's on the roof, you know, thinking about the experience with Daredevil and obviously sort of like very romantically invested in him saving her. And, you know, there's a real, there's one of those telling quiet panels where she's like, you saved me. And then we just get this shot of her face in the quiet. And she's got this very strange Mona Lisa type expression. Hmm. And I thought that that was supposed to be ominous and to the type of like sort of the way it's supposed to be ominous i think is subjective but i definitely did see her as sort of investing in this superhero fantasy in a way that she's eventually going to regret it's interesting that okay it's kind of like that's where her agency lies if it's anywhere yeah. that she chooses this relationship and her agency is, is and her agency is being is in being a very imperfect person yeah which <laughs> you know fits with what uh, Bendis is doing with Daredevil. They are both just, daring in ways that aren't entirely good for them. Yeah. I mean, it was my impression that I was supposed to be a little bit uncomfortable with the relationship as sort of manifesting here. I mean, we can even see him investing in her as more of an idea than a person. There are a number mm -hmm. of times where she's talking, where he's thinking about something else and not listening to her. And yet he'll come back to being like, oh, she's so amazing. And you're like, it is deliberate. It's got to be that, you know, mm -hmm. that he's not listening, that he's sort of constructing her as an idea. And he gets accused of doing that later in the series. Okay. This I defer having not read that. <laughs> this is an incredibly nitpicky point, but on their date, I am strongly dubious of the idea that Matt Murdock wouldn't know the origin of Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, that yes. bugged me too. Yeah, yeah. Mila explains the origin of Hell's Kitchen and I'm just like, I like that that's showing that she has an investment in the community as well and that's going to be a bond between them. But yeah, how would Matt not know that? He's a devil guy that like operates in Hell's Kitchen. Come on. He's a lawyer <laughs> who is, yeah. yeah. 
Anyway, I can't believe that I'm like supporting the Mila thing because like I definitely have so many issues with what happened to her as a character and I don't think she ever exercised the agency that she should have. But I I guess I'm just saying like based on this introduction, I think it could have gone in a different way. It didn't, but I could see the potential for it to go in a different way and I'm fighting for that potential in a way. That's fair. Yeah. Um what about Kirsten? What do we make of this relationship? Did we root for this um, one as it was kind of teased here? As it was teased, I don't know. I think at least at the, I can't remember the rest of the run very well, as my Samney comment probably suggests. But <laughs> at this point, I feel I feel like I would like them a lot better as there's a tension, a sexual tension between them, but it isn't exercised upon. Mm. That's interesting. Like be, them being flirty is fun. I don't yeah. know if I'd want to go beyond that, even knowing that they do go beyond that. Well, what do we make of kind of Daredevil's, well, Matt's, I keep saying Matt or Daredevil, but what what do we make of kind of his flirtatiousness in this Wade run? Because he's like very, he kisses the the woman at the wedding, at the mob wedding. What do we make of that? I think one of the reasons this relationship happens very slowly is because uh, Wade is aware that fans are really fatigued by Daredevil's love life. I mean, like, not just mm. fatigued, like going through the Brubaker Miller stuff is hard. <laughs> mm-hmm. They need a win. Yeah. Well, and a win, but also like they would, you have to ease into it very slowly because these are people <laughs> who are, have been traumatized by this. That's horrifying. So we're just about out of time and there's so much more that I would like to talk about with both of these series, but I kind of want to get back to one of the, (laughs) one of the common criticisms of Bendis is his Bendian dialogue. There are a number of scenes in this comic that are very dialogue heavy. Um, Often a technique he uses is that Maliv will do these very long, narrow panels and just with the whole rest of the pages filled with dialogue, like, in in this particular example, usually between Foggy and Matt. Um, I know Michael has some thoughts about <laughs> Bendisian dialogue and maybe I'll have a counterpoint to it and maybe I won't, but but what what are your thoughts, Michael, about why this is effective, why this is annoying? I think you're I think you're leaning towards the latter. Yeah, it's it's honestly a case of it's more annoying in retrospect that it is knowing where this goes with Bendis for a number of years. I think Bendis is a very excellent noir writer and uh, someone, a very good uh, first act planner of a superhero comic. I don't think he is very good at, with the exception of the Spider-Man series, I don't think he's very good at writing superheroes. I don't think he's very good at action scenes or about finishing a storyline in a, satisfying way uh but here in particular we have characters we have scenes that don't feel like they needed to go on quite as long as they did like we have four or five pages setting up a drug thing a a drug exchange in a car that gets busted up by daredevil that could have been one panel and it wouldn't have changed the real meaning there yeah i take the criticism that 
the pacing of the story can be a little bit of a challenge, but I think it depends. I was thinking about this as I was rereading the trade paperback yesterday. So I originally re read the Bendis Malieve run like all in trade paperback. I didn't read it in single issues. I think if I had been reading it in single issues, some of that pacing might have really bothered me. Because um, definitely when you're rereading the trade paperback and suddenly you realize like, oh, I'm at the end of like an issue, like not a lot happened. It was just kind of a lot of setup for the next thing. And I could definitely see how that would come across more. And like in the single issue reading but at the same time i just like one of the things i really love about this run is that i think it does tell sort of a really good sort of complete story and it does like build to a point that i do find very dramatic and fascinating and it does like work really hard at establishing kind of the setting and the texture of this world in ways that are some of the main reasons that i've revisited this series so many times so it's like i think that you're right and yet at the same time i just think like reading it all as a complete story and trades the pacing didn't bother me the way it would have if i was reading it differently well actually that's something i'd like to pursue just for quickly uh, you said it led mm -hmm. to a satisfying conclusion and you don't think this, so no, i'm i would love to hear you like it ends <laughs> on a cliffhanger right I'm thinking about like it ends on the on like the run itself ends on the notes that like Matt's going to jail. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. But I mean, Which, if you consider that an end that like, you know, that's sort of where this was obviously going from the beginning. Actually, I, I really like that. Yeah. Because I mean, that's the only way that it kind of can go yeah. from the outing of his secret identity at the beginning of this run to, you know, he has, he, he gets through, you know, all of the, you know, threats against his physical self. He, he gets through all of the emotional crises to a certain extent. The Mila thing, I think, is still a problem. Um, but he eventually gets taken by, down by those institutional barriers that he can't escape from and goes to jail. And I love that, actually. Yeah, you sold me. <laughs> I don't have to sell you on it, but I just like, yeah, I don't know. I've always like kind of loved that as a conclusion because it's such as like it's an anticlimax, but I think an anticlimax that mm -hmm. was planned from the beginning. Yes. The kind of thing I have against Bendis's later work is that it feels more like anticlimaxes that weren't necessarily planned. But oh that, yeah, yeah that works. some of his Avengers runs, some of his Avengers runs I could complain about like all day. Like I just don't even know what happened to him in some of those runs. Just introducing stuff that never pays off and just super, super yeah. frustrating. Well, still acknowledging that he really revitalized the Avengers in a way that led to kind of the world we have of Avengers today. Yes, I know, I know, I know. Yeah. No, I liked sort of the beginning of New Avengers, but it kind of went off the rails to, for me toward the end, which is exactly what you're complaining about in terms of him not wrapping up stories effectively. But I would argue that Daredevil wraps up effectively and that Alias mostly wraps up effectively. But um, one of the things I was noticing too, though, with the kind of the Bendisian dialogue, like definitely as I was rereading it and I was kind of in a hurry to reread it, I was like, oh, this is a lot of text. But at the same time, he does lean into sort of Malieve's skills as an artist to a certain respect, because there are a lot of sort of silent pages in this yeah. comic as well. So I think like I appreciated, I appreciated that aspect of the pacing and the way he was at least sort of, you know, reining in some of his tendencies to sort of speak to the skills of his artist here as well. Absolutely. Anyway, that's my big defense of Bendis. Not bad. <laughs> but I don't know. Do you, do you do you have thoughts on on Bendis, Andrew, that we should add to this conversation? No, I yield my time. <laughs> well yeah i could keep talking about daredevil and either of these runs uh, for for much much longer but hopefully we've provided you a fun conversation
so that is just about it other than as usual to do some recommendations related to our reading for this month. Uh, do you want to go first, Michael? I would recommend uh, Mark Wade's run with Mike Waringo that I mentioned earlier on the Fantastic Four. I think it's a really good kind of regrouping of the Fantastic Four that takes them, does a nice combination with the fantastic events, but also rooting them as a family. I also want to give a tentative recommendation to a comic book run I haven't actually read. <laughs> that is the ultimate academic question, yeah. Michael. Uh, while I was uh, doing some background reading for this one, I came across Louis Michael Rosen's essay, The Lawyer, a Superhero, How Marvel Comics Daredevil Depicts the American Court System and Legal Practice. And he made a really great defense of Charles Soule's run on Daredevil and Soule being a lawyer. Uh, he presumably gets that part of it accurate. Uh, I think the story arc specifically features uh, Matt Murdock defending his rights to keep a secret identity. And that's an interesting approach. Uh, I wanted to like to let that run more than I did, but yeah. uh, that's a topic for another time. Well, I mean, that run featured uh, Daredevil fighting crime with a bunch of like super powered priests and like a oh. lot of oh, stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I like the setup was good, but it went it, again, went to a place that wasn't necessarily satisfying, but that's a topic mm -hmm. for another time. But thank you for that recommendation. Um, Andrew, what have you got for us? I'm going to recommend um, Frank Miller and Bill Sienkiewicz's um, 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 Electra Assassin, which mm -hmm. is um, from Marvel's Epic imprint, which is their more mature imprint. It is surreal and weird, like to the point it's not even clear if the main character is actually alive. Uh, and mm -hmm. it's it's steeped in that sort of Frank Miller Daredevil mythology, but it's also doing that abstract surrealism that I was crediting to um, I'm leave a little bit uh, in the Bendis run. So I think it connects in those ways. And it's also really kind of interesting because we have a sub theme on this podcast of like trashing Grant Morrison. <laughs> Morrison gets a lot of credit for Arkham Asylum, but Arkham Asylum owes a lot to Electra Assassin. Uh, and I don't yeah. think huh. that debt is acknowledged as much as I would like it to be. Yeah. A related recommendation to that, which I guess is my additional recommendation is a comic book called Black Widow, The Things They Say About Her, which is also, I'm just like looking up who the writer is of it, but it's Sankevich on art. And it's written apparently by Richard Morgan. And if you enjoy Electro Assassin, I think you might enjoy that one as well. It's not quite as experimental as Electro Assassin, um, but it has an interesting showing of Daredevil. And I really love the Black Widow Daredevil relationship. So mm -hmm. that is a rando, a rando comic that probably not many people have read. But my being a daredevil completist, I have read that. Um, <laughs> yeah, my recommendation is going to be um, Anne Nascenti's run on Daredevil. So Nascenti had been, uh, she's done a, had done a lot of different things at Marvel. She, one of her first writing assignments was she was responsible for killing off Spider-Woman, um, which was like a, a much maligned storyline, but she was put in a very impossible position there. Um, she was an editor on the X-Men books for a long time um, and introduced some important characters to the X-Men franchise, including the character Mojo. And long shots. Um, but she also had a long and sort of, you know, sort of cult favorite run on Daredevil, starting with Daredevil Volume 1, number 236 from 1986. So she was following Frank Miller's work on the character um, 
Daredevil Born Again with David Mazzuchelli was the run directly before Nascenti's run on the character, so it was some big shoes to fill. Much of the run is penciled by John Romita Jr. doing some of his finest work at Marvel, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a run that gets into a lot of interesting gender and sexual metaphors, as Nascenti is known for. And if you haven't checked out that run of Daredevil, again, although I think it's sort of a cult favorite, I don't think it's a run that a lot of people have read and um, it's been collected in some volumes but the whole thing hasn't been collected but you can read it on marvel unlimited if you have access to that so i think that's about it for today we don't really have anyone to thank because we're just in our homes i mean i guess i can thank the construction outside of my building for not being hopefully too loud we'll see how that ends up on the recording um, and i'll thank both of you for being awesome and humoring me and talking oh. about daredevil today <laughs> Um, And next month, we are going to be looking at Four Kids Walk Into a Bank by Matthew Rosenberg and Tyler Boss, paired with Paper Girls, Volume 1 by Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang. So we will see you then.